this last few weeks in deep sea exploration has been quite difficult, obviously, because there has been the Titan disaster and five people have lost their lives. And I don't really want to comment too much on the details of what happened because, you know, everyone else is chiming in. And I think it's, we're well aware of what happened and being in the submersible business myself and over the last four years, we've been well aware of dangers of this particular submarine, and that's probably no secret now. And there's been lots of articles written, and I think I don't, I don't really want to chime in on that one at all. Uh, we'll just let the investigation take its course. But what I do want to say is, one of the people in the submarine was Paul Henry Nagelet, or we we know him as PH, and he's a French naval officer who has an absolutely extraordinary career. In many, many, many ways, he's involved in so many things. And he came, he was a consultant when he went to the five deep. So he came on every single trip we did for, for a year. And, you know, we became, I like to say, good friends. We published some papers together. We shared cabins together. Just an extraordinarily knowledgeable guy. Um, conflicted between very sad that he's no longer with us. And to some degree, I'm angry that he got into that submarine. He should have known better. But, uh, it's, it's 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 a difficult one because we're on the ship right now where where there are several at least half a dozen of us on here who remember PH very very well from this very vessel and you know when the news started coming out that he was on board and you know you're looking across the room and you're on I sit next to the desk he's uh, and stuff like that it's, it's very very sad but he was an extraordinarily cool guy he wasn't some rich billionaire that a lot of people on Twitter want to take pots at he was extraordinarily humble you'll have no idea how experienced and how extraordinary he was and I didn't for a long time he just kept going to my office and every and again he would sit down with his big thick French accent and say what, you know, what are you doing and he, and, and he explained and then he just delivers the story and the thing and you're like wow and after a couple of times I remember sitting there going like because he was quite humble he was quite sort of just this guy character kind of hanging around a lot of big egos and after a while you're like hold on wait a minute everybody stopped who is this guy again it's like <laughs> Who is this guy? Because he's like, he's done everything. And, you know. He's really softly spoken. He's just got this really strong, thick accent. Super yeah. humble. Lovely guy. And I'm absolutely, genuinely devastated. And it's just really sad. You know, I can see him when we did Challenger Deep. He came into the wet lab one day and he's like, I have an egg. And we're like, what? <laughs> so, what you have an egg. Okay. <laughs> what, what are you going to do with the egg? And he goes, I have a theory. Context, please. Yeah. And, and he <laughs> wanted to put the egg down to challenge a deep on the lander and back. And he did. And it came back and it did not break. And he was still chuffing himself. You know, that, that's a very silly little PA story. But, you know, in terms of his career, and, and if anyone has the time, you should uh, do a good, a good, really good deep dive into PH Nargule. And you'll find that there is an extraordinary individual there. And I'm very, very sad that he's gone. So I just want to pay homage to PH. Good guy. I don't know what else to say. It's a sad day for, it's a sad week for uh, the exploration and on many levels. And I think there's going to be a lot of ramifications because of this, but it was not. All I will say is this is something that I guess we all saw coming. We just didn't expect that one of our friends would be in there. take on a science podcast about everything deep sea i'm dr thomas lindley and out in the field joining us from the middle of the pacific is the professor alan jameson hello mate hello hello yeah so what's muskie's data satellite jobby that's allowing you to talk to us from out in the field we're using starlink 
It works really well. It does. Yeah. This last episode of the 2,800 nautical miles over to Hawaii had a port call in Hawaii where we weren't allowed off. Oh, damn. So there's various COVID things on us. And we've probably done about another well over a 1,000 miles south of Hawaii now. So uh, we're probably about 4,000 nautical miles into a 6,000 nautical mile trip. Bit of a marathon. <laughs> Turns out the Pacific's big. It's massive, yeah. Stopping every 200 miles, deploying everything, and then moving on to the next site. Uh, always on the wrong heading, always, in terms of uh, the direction the ship faces relative to the ocean. So uh, it's, it's been a bit wibbly-wobbly, is the technical term for it. You said you're realising why the old sailors never really went in this direction. Yeah, from across the Pacific, yeah, depending on what latitude you are, you always go east to west or west to east, and you pick your latitude very carefully. Once, however, we're going north to south, so we're always 90 degrees to whatever has come out there. No matter how beautiful a day is, we're still getting pummeled every day. It's been over a month now. I think today's day 30. They just hammered every single day. Yeah. It'll be done by day 44, I think. Something like that. I've kind of lost count now. It's not like being in prison. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. You're not... No, I'm not, I'm not counting it down You're at all. You're not going strange. No, it's all good. <laughs> Remember when we programmed a um, an LCD display once to count down until we could all go to the pub? Yeah, 500 hours we started that, didn't we? Was. It was a bit grim. Yeah. I mean, it was an amazing opportunity, and it's wonderful to be out in the field. But yeah, you do you do look forward to home eventually. Yeah, this is definitely a marathon. But cool stuff. Some lovely images coming out. You've been sticking them on Twitter. Folks on the Patreon get exclusive. Yeah, I've been tweeting. I mean, what was really kind of like great, but at the same time slightly upsetting, is the very first landing we put down. We've done 32 now. And the very first one we put down got a beautiful sequence of the Bathysaurus mollusk the lizard fish you just completely as a complete fluke just landed in front of the, the lando yeah 31 landers later never seen anything anywhere near as interesting as that <laughs> <laughs> oh well ah well never mind that one is particularly interesting so we don't know a great deal about these things mm. because they're sitting white predators so they don't come to the landers and i'm just amazed by how buoyant it was by how easily it just lifted itself off the seabed i thought yeah. these were, were dense heavy things that sort of were well yeah. planted on the bottom it lifted off the seabed and didn't even stir up a single grain of sediment. It's amazing. Yeah, loved it. Yeah, it, it is like a sniper, isn't it? Yeah. It is like a ninja. Yeah. Just gently left it off. Don't get me wrong, we have seen a lot of cool stuff, but uh, it's because we're trying to do this huge, massive... In the end, it's going to be something like 18,000 nautical miles will have covered by the end of the year across the Abyssal Plains. You know, a lot of it is very samey, and it will all come out in the stats at the end. But, you know, quite often we're... Uh, Spoiled in the trenches because you're going to unknown places and seeing strange things and it's very immediately rewarding this one is definitely a long game where any patterns trends or whatever is going yeah. to come out later and, and when we're doing the trench work we're, we're jumping like hundreds to thousands of meters of depth difference when we're doing the trench work so you see the see the faunal groups change really quickly yeah and this is on such an enormous scale that you're not even going to see the differences, like you say, until you run it all through the stats. Yeah. Because it's going to feel very samey because you're covering thousands and thousands of miles. It's all good fun, though. Yeah, it is. Be home time soon. A couple of weeks. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know you couldn't get off in Hawaii. That's not on. No, no, we, no, no we, we, we have strict COVID protocols for obvious reasons. Times have changed. And so, uh, yeah, we can do protocols, but we, have, we still have to adhere to various bubbles and whatnot, and, which I think is fine because the last thing you want is... Uh, Nice little virus on the ship. So. Yeah, about bouncing around. Well, from my end, it's been an exciting few weeks at Tapapa. Nice things going on. We had a two-day mass sunfish dissection, which 
it, well, it's about as cool as it sounds. It was really good. So we were visited by uh, sunfish expert Marianne Nygaard. She's described a couple of species. And we just worked through some sunfish specimens that we'd had turn up, like seven or eight little cute ones that were like the size of a dinner plate. Then a bit more of a chonky boy that sort of filled the table, but still small by sunfish standards. And um, yeah, they're really weird looking on the outside. And to be honest, when you dissect them, they're really weird looking inside as well. I know they had that like really robust sort of body. Like I thought, I thought they'd be more armored, but it's like, um, it's like collagen and it feels like syntactic foam because they're neutrally buoyant. So it's like all that big bulky body, like so much of it is this weird, like pure white foam. It feels like a resiny foam kind of thing. Oh, it feels like um, a bit like a really firm, you know, the mattresses, memory foam mattress. Yeah. That's it. It's like really firm memory foam. It's like they're made of that. I know this is grim. This is like a, a biologist thing, but like it's really satisfying to cut through because it's like cutting through mm. foam. It's like really clean. Um, so many, many a sunfish dissection. Is the sunfish the one you were talking about where the guy shot it that said you couldn't fire a... Yes. Yeah, okay. Did you try and shoot one? I'm, I'm still... <laughs> We did come up, actually, because they do like a bit of hunting down here. And so we were t tempted to test that. I know I've read that. I know I didn't dream that. But uh, we're trying to track down where I've where I've read that. It would have been the old Challenger reports or something like that. It was a proper, like, old one. But, yeah, but you can shoot them with a twenty two cal. And it's, yeah, it's this weird collagen stuff. It's this weird, like, memory foam. But I suppose it's, I suppose it's like ballistic gel, really, like the stuff they put in um, bulletproof vests. <laughs> I thought it was, like, hard. I thought it was armored. But it's like, it's like this weird foam. They're weird fish. They're really weird. We also had a member of the public drop in a pineapple fish, which if you don't yeah. know what that is, Google it because it's ex it looks exactly like you think it does. And then the most exciting one was one of the fisheries observers had put aside a run male short finned eel so the freshwater eels here it's a mystery where they reproduce just like it is back in the uk and a few other places we we just know they go to sea we don't know where they go and this was the first time a, a sort of ripe male that had left and gone into the ocean to to reproduce had, uh, had turned up and it was just absolutely packed with gonads and the body had sort of been reduced away like the bones had all gone a bit soft it's got eyes have gotten really big so that's obviously some some key element to them finding a mate and yeah so got excited about that called a few people and um we'll have a little sesh where somebody comes and we have a look at these eels oh you've been having fun oh loving it loving it messing with some fish also been chatting with a good few listeners i know a lot of scientists listen to this podcast while they're processing their samples just to keep their brain active so if you're sorting through a jar of bugs right now you've got this Keep, keep at it. And also the greatest compliment a podcaster can receive is people listening to our podcast to, to go to sleep. So uh, for you, Jamie, night, night. And Kerry, I know, don't find this weird. Don't find this weird. Me, me and Jamie just have our little, our little nighttime ritual. So uh, sleep tight, Jamie, sleep tight. There we go. That's, that's destroyed a marriage. <laughs> and I need to get to you and see what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> somebody listening to to the show to go to sleep and it's unfortunately for them somebody who knows me in the real world and his wife finds it re really disconcerting to hear me chattering away from the corner of the room oh let's have some fun with that let's do a bedtime story i've got a few stories <laughs> we can tell yes let's have whoever jamie is we're coming for you and we're going to freak your wife out excellent well that's lovely also, nice chats going on over on the Patreon, over on the Discord. Uh, we've been talking about tattoos, actually, and everyone's comparing their marine tattoos. And to give a shout out to new patrons who are supporting the show. Well, the first one I did a double take of, Tammy Frank. Yes. Tammy, who was a guest on the last one, yes. is donating to this nonsense. So thank you, Tammy. Also, Martin Polizotto, Ray M, Nicole Veit label Anna P, and Eric. Just Eric. So thanks, everyone. 
for joining the Patreon program and helping us keep the show going. Do you have a soundtrack, Alan? Uh, we have a soundtrack, and because when we deploy and recover landers on this particular ship, we like to play some good, good old classic metal. And so the soundtrack to this particular trip is probably Pantera, Playboys from Hell. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to stick with yours. That's a good one. Pantera, I've got that groove. They've got that groove. Yeah, perfect lander deployment groove. Okay, then. Music to deploy landers to. Yeah, you can't hear anything that's going on in the radio because of that, but, you know, it's probably breaking all sorts of health and safety regulations. I'm sure it's fine. It's great for morale. Yeah. It's, it's morale that's important. Absolutely. Cool. Well, some deep sea news. I will start off with it was the New Zealand Marine Science Society conference and our very own friend of the show, Ash, was uh, one of the organizers. And so I caught up with him in an empty lecture theater just before it started filling. We only had like 10 minutes to chat quickly. So I talked to him a little bit about organizing a conference and uh, even organizing the big deep sea conference with James Cameron as the, as the opening act. And it turns out behind the scenes that was rather stressful. <laughs> it's good to see you, mate. It is good to see you too. Now, now you're in New Zealand. Now local. We can now have local. Chats. You'll turn into a Kiwi soon. I'll get there. And I'll you'll mangle your accent like I've mangled mine over 20 years. Mine, mine's pre-mangled. Is mine's it already? Up. Yeah, yeah, because I'm a Brummy. All this oh, is lies. Is that right? Yeah, oh we're going to talk about this at one point Jeez. on the show, but I'm, I'm just an absolute fraud. <laughs> you are. That is amazing. And Brummy being one of the strongest accents, it's pretty hard, hard to hide. Exactly, exactly. Voted least sexy accent. I know. Probably after the Welsh accent, which is probably why no, mine's been so suppressed as well. No, they love the Welsh. So how's it going? Going well. Yeah, big, big job to organizers. You know, scientific conferences are sort of organized most often by the scientists themselves and teams of volunteers and students and whatever. So big effort. But we're on day three, last day, which is great. It's a, you know, it's a local conference. Um, so it has that sort of community feel. People are very forgiving of the mistakes and what have you. And, um, you know, as long as you've got good food and plenty of booze, uh, most people are happy. So, it's a, it's so a really so young good. conference. It's a yeah, real that's quite typical. Early career. Yeah. So normally you see at least a third of the talks be given by students. And sometimes, you know, even up to half. I remember one conference a couple of years back, I did the, you know, did the student assessment of their talks, and it was like half the talks, and, and many by master students. So not just PhD students. And the quality is amazing, I think, for, that's the, for, for the young age and stage in the, the career that a lot of these um, That's what's are. really surprised me. Like, is that right? Yeah. We're, we're going to be okay. Like, yeah. The youngs are really, yeah. really good. Like yeah. I know it's taught more as a skill. Like uh, maybe when we were coming up, sort of yeah, no, presentation you learnt yeah. on the hoof. That's right. But like the quality of the slides, the confidence of the delivery. Yeah. Like yeah. these student talks are really, really good talks. No, absolutely like, enjoyable. So, and you know, this morning is a good example. The plenary talk this morning, so a three quarters of an hour talk, was given by the previous year's a winner of a student uh, research award. So she's only like eight months or something into her PhD, and she gave the most, you know, brilliantly confident talk, clear and everything for 40 minutes. I mean, that's that takes some doing. That's a long time. Yeah. That's really a long good. time for an early talk. No, so you're right. Lots of encouragement to be had from just the proportions of the people that are here. And then this like nice, gregarious atmosphere. There's yeah. some jokes. There's some levity. It's no, that's right. Everyone's genuinely curious. There isn't that. That sometimes you get that sort of scientific like. Yeah, or you're encroaching on my yeah, area, yeah, that's right. and you know, my stuff's better. Than I yours. did this 20 years yeah, yeah. ago, and mine was better. And yeah, it's no, it's that, really... that, that's more, it's more a rare occurrence here. It is much more. Everyone knows that you know, we don't have many resources in New Zealand to do science, and therefore, we need everybody doing it. And so, you don't want to put anybody off. And what you're meant to be doing, of course, is helping anyone you can see might be struggling. So, 
talk, you know, when talks are given, people are being as constructive as they possibly can. No one wants to put anyone off. Yeah, so that, that gives a nice feeling. It is. It's a really welcoming one. Yeah, I've, cool. I've really enjoyed it. Well, I'm glad for your first one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and oh, so the other thing is that every third year or something, we um, do a joint one with the, our Australian brother-sister organization. So next year is actually in Hobart, in Tasmania. Oh, cool. Yeah, so you have a, we oh, have a joint one every three that. years. Yeah. They're much bigger, of course. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good. That's good. And deep sea session all day today. I know. So, which wasn't uh, originally a plan. It no. was just by the weight of, weight weight of abstracts. Of, that's right. So <laughs> um, when we obviously ask for abstract submission, um, then the person who's developing the program just looks at what the, the sort of distribution of the talks and comes up with the um, session themes. And yeah, lo and behold, um, a whole day on deep sea ecosystems, the most talks in any one session. So 15 talks in this uh, session, you know, taking us the whole day to get through those, which is terrific. Unfortunately for me, I'm, uh, I'd originally, on being on the organizing committee, had said, oh yes, everyone has to chair a session. Uh, I thought there may be about four talks on the deep sea, but it's 15, so I'm here now with um, my PhD student, Katie Bigham, um, chairing the whole day. So <laughs> It was meant to just be a little oh, session. I know, a little session, which I could have taken it easy. But this, you know, this wasn't, it wasn't one of the original categories no. and so this reflects a deep sea preference to New Zealand yeah, science. that's right and an, at least an interest so there's a variety of talks in that out of that 15 but looking at it it looks like there's sort of two main themes I think that come out one is the sorts of um, concern about human in, impacts in the deep sea and fishing and potential mining and things like this and then the other is understanding the biodiversity of the deep sea particularly for New Zealand where we have uh, relatively, you know, relatively undersampled. We don't have often the resources to take the typical deep sea samples from ROVs or things like this. Uh, so people are trying to discover what that biodiversity is and using different techniques, genetics, uh, using benthic bycatch, anything you can get, yeah. and using, for instance, the value of archived material. So we've been sampling in New Zealand water since the 1950s or so, and so there's quite a large collection, uh, particularly at, at Niwa, uh, one of the institutes that I work at, which is available for researchers across the globe to come and utilize. And we saw today, this morning's session, because we still got this afternoons, where people have been using those samples. Yeah, yeah, going right, way back into the yeah. archive, and then yeah. you've got before and after. Yeah, you know. deep sea corals, let's get them out. Let's see what we can do with them, the genetics, uh, using them for paleo, climate change detection, yeah. etc. Big earthquakes, uh, a heat event, you know, we've got, we've got the, yep. the previous uh, state as well. Yeah. Yep. Can I get the Cameron story from you? Is that, is that too much of a tangent? Because it was so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, these are sort of stressful events, um, organizing them. And um, luckily, I'm not the lead organizer for this one. So that's great. Um, but I did um, organize, was the lead organizer for the Deep Sea um, Biology Symposium, which was here in Wellington in 2013. And that was huge. That was big, yeah. And to get it in, it was the first time that that symposium had been in the South, Southern Hemisphere. So it felt a bit of a coup. Uh, to get everyone here. And one of the little draw cards that we played was uh, the presence of James Cameron, the film director, who actually partly resides in New Zealand. And so, and I'd actually met him before. And so I thought maybe I'll just reach out to him and ask him, you know, would he do the opening, opening talk? And because he'd recently um, dived to the bottom of the Mariana Trench in his, in his submersible. And so he agreed, which was, which was absolutely terrific. Um, a lot of organization about, you know, how you meet such megastars and, and so forth. He arrived by helicopter. I came on my bike. And, and then the biggest um, 
my worry originally was, you know, would we have enough people in the morning who would turn up? Often the opening address, some people come a bit late or whatever. So I had told a few of my friends that James Cameron was going to be talking. And the auditorium was absolutely packed, standing room only. <laughs> anyway, grandparents and children. Grandparents, children, who were clearly not registrants in their school gear on, on, their way to, on their way to school. And um, thought, that's great, that's terrific, we got a full house and what have you. But then it turned out he bought his um, presentation, his video on the on wrong... Like 8K raw yeah, footage. Right. <laughs> no on university computer will the, ever play. The computer would not play. <laughs> yeah. And so I was standing there, just sweat dripping off me, and he's thinking, this isn't going to work. And then uh, the projectionist, who was at the back of the auditorium, came down and said, what's the problem? And we said, look, it's rendered in the wrong way. James Cameron came up with the notion that he could call up the film production studio, which was in the nearby suburb, and they could get him a new one. And the projectionist volunteered to get on his motorbike <laughs> and shoot to a, with, the, a pen drive. Yeah, with a pen drive <laughs> over to the other, the other, to their um, studio and then come back. Meanwhile, I had to entertain 350 plus people, including children and grandchildren, uh, as, while we waited for this film to come. Anyway, Julie arrived with the guy running down the auditorium, you know, step by step. Like a heart transplant. That's right, wearing his... <laughs> still wearing, that's right, still <laughs> wearing his motorcycle helmet with this video in place, and we plugged it in, and off he we went. There was a big roar, you know, from the crowd. Like, yeah, it's on. The whole thing, of course, got the rest of the conference was completely delayed from, because of from that. From talk one. Yeah, from talk one, we <laughs> lost the programme. So it was a very stressful moment, but nonetheless fun. So, cheers to as, as you can probably hear, like the room's filling up. Oh yes, so it we've is. Gotta go. We've got to go. We've got to start chairing the session. All right, cheers, Tom. Ash was also awarded the John Morton Medal for advances in marine conservation and sustainability. So nice one, Ash. Well done, friend of the show. Good job. He, he reluctantly accepted it because he's he's humble and lovely. But yeah, he has a medal now. He better be wearing it. I don't think he likes medals. He doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that would be received <laughs> that well. Yeah. No, I had to go up and get it and everything. Oh, God, he must have been mortified. <laughs> in a good way. In a good, in a good, humble way. Yeah. Yeah, not in an ungrateful way. No, no. Very, very humble, very supportive person. Lovely Ash. A new species, and maybe even sort of a, a new higher level taxon of a gelatinous predator has been filmed. Uh, so EV Nautilus, all the live streaming is going on right now. So uh, if you're into your live streaming, have a look out because I think them and Schmidt are streaming right now. So lots of cool things to watch. And they were out at 1400 meters in the Pacific Remote Island Marine National uh, Monument and saw a pretty cool looking orange jellyfish that I think looks a little bit like the uh, the tripod from War of the Worlds. So they think it likely belongs to the Bathychorus genus, but uh, it has this interesting brown-red pigment, obviously to block anything that it consumes, lighting it up, so to hide from predators as well. And it has just three tentacles. Hmm. So apparently Triramus jellyfish are extremely rare. Wow. It looks kind of like a Narcomedusa, but it's only got the three. I'm getting kind of fascinated by Narcomedusa. I saw another day. Oh, yeah? And they have four, but the tentacles come out of the top of the bell rather than hanging down below it like a normal jellyfish do but that one does look particularly odd never seen anything quite like that before it does look like the tripods from more of the world yeah it? but thankfully it's probably tiny and not something that can hover over a city and destroy it which is really lucky but you can see where the tentacles originate in the same place and then they sort of pass up through the bell yeah there's quite spider-like 
elbow joint. Very, very cool. Uh, just off Taiwan, in Taiwanese waters, a goblin shark has been trawled up, pregnant with six pups. 800 kilograms, that's about 1,700 pounds. 4.7 meters long, over 15 feet. Yeah, and it was originally going to be sold to a restaurant, but the Taiwan Ocean Artistic Museum, which sounds pretty cool, talked them into giving them to it, so it will eventually go on display. And it had uh, six pups uh, inside it. It was a pregnant female. They, they give birth to live young. And they, they're they one of those sort of things that are touted as a scary deep sea thing, but they, they look awful dead. They're pretty creepy alive, but they, they really look quite horrific dead. That, that extrudable jaw is usually held sort of retracted in, in a more sort of sharky looking head. But when they come up, they've, they've got really sort of loose gelatinous flesh. They always have like blood capillaries bursting. Well, they're relaxed, don't they? Yeah, yeah the whole mouth relaxes and it just looks like it's some big mad thing. But yeah, fast, yeah. And quite bloody as well. So it just, uh, yeah, they they look far scarier when they're up. But you know, it is a, it is a big toothy looking predator. So it's, a, it's one I'll allow for being a bit scary. Did anyone look at the props to check to see if they look like plastic toys? Yeah, if they had a seam on them or not the right number of gills. Yeah. <laughs> We've got data on what the pups look like now, I guess. Yeah. It's not an entirely new discovery, but there's a really nice little post in Nautilus on the, the largest bioluminescent organs which belong to the uh, Dana octopus squid. And they're called octopus squid because they've only got eight arms, despite technically being squid. They like the feeding tentacles. They can get to uh, over two meters long, so about seven feet. But what's really interesting about them is they've got these massive photophores. So on the two stubbier arms, they've got these lemon-shaped and sized, actually, huge photophores. So they can actually admit really, really quite high-powered bioluminescent light. Uh, lots of theories about what that might be for. And they can sort of flash them as well. There's a sort of lens over it and a, an eyelid essentially over it where they can they can make it pulse. And I always wondered if this was like, remember when Edie Widder was talking about, oh, I think, no, actually, it was um, it was one of the Triton boys talking about flashing and something flashing back. Yeah, Frank. So, um, yeah, one of the one of the party pieces from the subs is to, is to flash a torch and something out there flashes back. And uh, I wonder if it's these squid. It seems about right. And they're not entirely sure what they do this for. The other one was just a little side note. I noticed in some of the coverage of World Ocean Day that on the BBC coverage, they still said aliens for deep sea critters, but it was put in inverted commas. So like maybe we're making progress. Maybe maybe the message is getting no. through. No. They still say aliens, but they put it in inverted commas. Mm, I don't buy that. And speaking of, of not buying it, I'm really not sure how I feel about this. I need to do a bit more research. Have you seen Dr. Deep Sea did 93 days underwater, which set a new record? Yes, I did. But I'm very skeptical about all of that. Yeah, I did, a, I did a little bit of digging and I'm not super liking what I found like it, it, the the record is really good and he seems to do lots of stuff with uh, with kids and ocean stewardship and sort of discovering new things but then the reports after it started coming out about and I'm going to put my uh, my skepticals on for this I'm going to read this with my skepticals apparently a 20% growth in telomere length which are the areas at the end of uh, our DNA that apparently get shorter and shorter as we get older and it's sort of a, a sign of aging and also 10 times more stem cells than at the start of the research. And that just started to sound a little bit... Mm pseudoscience -y. and then reading some of the reports there's quotes like however pressure such as is found in therapeutic hyperbaric oxygen chamber has been shown to have several benefits which living under pressure of the waves seems to have replicated but then no citation no, nothing to then back that claim up and then with a bit more digging it seems that dr deep sea owns a private clinic where you can have pressure treatment yeah. and i was i was digging around a little bit more and and the sort of the most detail i could find 
about this was a, an equation which just said oxygen plus pressure plus breathe equals advanced healing power. And that, yeah, all right, I'm out. that made the alarm start ringing. I'm fascinated that one. <laughs> Hey, of interest, so I can't remember what, 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 where did he spend the 93 days. Actually, well, what depth and was he actually like in the water, not just in a tank or in a vessel? Oh, it was, um, I think it was like 20 meters, like despite calling himself Dr. Deep Sea. But yeah, it's like 20 meters. You can see the sun. There's a diver waving through the glass. So uh, it was at elevated pressure. But he's in air. Yeah, yeah, he's in a habitat. Okay, so I'm tapping out of this one. Let's not give this guy any more time. That's just nonsense. <laughs> Advanced healing power, blah, blah, nah. Nope, nope, nope. Yeah, because it's a lot of chat that's going on on the back of this this sort of record being set, but I've only got to dig a little bit until it's a product, yeah. which is what I didn't like. He, he, he was a military diver, and he's written some papers on... Um, on sort of treating uh, decompression sickness, but all of the health benefity stuff gets gets really like I couldn't find a single paper. I couldn't find any references. Just this equation that equals advanced healing power. So yeah, tap tapping out on that one. I can offer advanced healing power. I think. Well, I wanted to get you to tell the story because remember this came up before. Do you remember a friend of a friend heard about the advanced healing power of? A barometric chamber and decided to build one for Nana. Oh yes, that was the <laughs> chief engineer on the Kaharoa. Yes, that's right. And they had all sorts of problems. And then poor <laughs> Nana got incapacitated inside the hyperbaric chamber in their back garden. Yeah. Oh, I can't remember the exact details of that, but it was pretty mental. Yeah, someone had seen this in the in the news that pressure oxygen treatment might be a cure all and built a barometric chamber in their back garden and decided to pressurize Nana to heal yeah. her. And I think she, she blacked out and was rushed to hospital. Yeah, it's a public <laughs> service announcement. Don't pressurize your Nana. It's never going to end well. I'm sure there's an act to it. Yeah. Oh, so, shall we have a guest this week? We well, probably should. Rather than talk about advanced healing power, maybe we should talk about good solid geology. You know, stuff that's like there. Oh, good reliable rocks. Good reliable rocks that don't lie. There's no major interpretation. It is what it is. Now, I, I know for a fact that there's a lot of interpretation in geology. <laughs> don't ruin it. Don't ruin it. We're trying to make a segue here. Right? I know. Sorry, sorry. Continue to segue away. Yeah, so uh, geology does not lie. And uh, rocks are rocks, mud is mud. Pebbles are pebbles, cobbles are cobbles. Boulders are boulders, and so on and so on. Tectonics are, are, is, is a thing. And so that's the opposite end of the spectrum from advanced healing power. And so we should talk to someone who drills big massive holes in the seafloor for fun and science, I think. Excellent. So anyone following the news recently might have seen there was uh, the deepest, deepest hole dug in the seabed. This turned out to be a, an interesting legacy that's been going on since about the 1970s. The quest for the moho, the hole that would give us mantle rock from below the Earth's crust, basically, to, to penetrate the Earth's crust. And yeah, it, it's happened a few times with this particular expedition, Expedition 399, Building Blocks of Life, got in there. So I'm going to have a chat with Dr. Andrew McCaig, one of the co-PIs on this recent drilling trip. I'm joined by Dr. Andrew McCaig, Associate Professor at the University of Leeds in the UK, and his research focuses on the structural geology, tectonics, and geochemistry. He was recently the co-chief scientist of the IODP Expedition 399 Building Blocks of Life, Atlantis Massif, that sailed between April and June 2023. 
it's mantle rocks which have been exposed on the seafloor that we drilled into and they've been exposed there by faulting but the previous record was 200.9 meters and we did 1268 meters so we exceeded the previous record for drilling into mantle rocks by more than five times so that was the that was the achievement and it means we've got very continuous what we're recovering we're recovering a drill core here it's about uh, six and a half centimeters in diameter and uh, what we got is very continuous sections of drill core so that the scientists can look at that in, in great detail as we move forward with post-cruise research. And by getting sort of deeper into the mantle rock, I'm guessing exposed mantle rock has sort of started to change, started to be impacted, started reacting with the seawater. Is this sort of a, a purer example of what's going on inside the planet? Well, it's deep inside the planet that the mantle rocks are not reacting with water uh, certainly in the way that they are doing here. So the mantle is made of pridotite rock, and pridotite is the main mineral in that is olivine. And uh, typical mantle rocks are maybe 70% uh, olivine. And at depth, if you're, you know, let's say down at 50 kilometers or, or something, that's very hot. And the only place where water gets down to that depth is in subduction zones. But we're at, at the mid-Atlantic ridge where basically the water only, can only go down maybe a few kilometers. So what happens when these mantle rocks get exposed on the seafloor is that the water can get at them really easily. And the, the mineral olivine alters to the mineral serpentine. And serpentine, you can think of it as a hydrated version of olivine. It's got more or less the same magnesium and iron and, and silica in it, but it's got water added to it. And that process of serpentinization is really interesting because in that process, what you have is the olivine mineral has about 10% of an iron-rich end member. And that iron is in the 2 plus state, Fe 2 plus. But when the change is serpentine, the serpentine can't hold all that iron. And so it throws that iron out. And what that does is it changes into magnetite. Now, magnetite is a mineral which contains both Fe2 plus and Fe3 plus. So what you have here is a redox reaction. So you oxidize the iron from Fe2 plus to Fe3 plus, and you need to reduce something else. So you reduce seawater from H2O to H2. So this process generates hydrogen gas. And that hydrogen gas is then what we would call in our expedition, though some people might dispute this, the first building block of life. And then that hydrogen gas can combine with carbon dioxide, which may be either from the ocean or it may be deep-seated carbon dioxide coming from deep in the earth. The earth is degassing a certain amount of carbon dioxide all the time. So reaction between carbon dioxide, CO2, and hydrogen, H2, makes CH4, which is methane, we're all familiar with methane. That's what we burn on our cookers still at the moment in order to cook our food if we have a gas cooker. So that's methane. Now, most methane in the world is generated by biological processes, by animals. You know, we, we've all heard about this in the context of climate change, that cows and sheep are eating grass and generating methane, and that methane is contributing to global warming. And this is the normal way it happens. But here, what we're seeing in, in the serpentinization is you're making methane by abiotic processes, by processes that don't require any microbes or that sort of activity. And then what we see as well is we see higher organic molecules like formic acid and acetic acid. So these have now a carboxylic grip. So now the methane is combining with more water and so on. It's making more complicated molecules. And then finally, in the Atlantis Massif, previous workers have detected some amino acids, tryptophan, which is an amino acid. Now, this isn't one of the amino acids that's in DNA, but if you can make amino acids without any biological activity, then this is what you need to do in order to, before you can possibly have life, uh, if we believe in the evolutionary version of the origin of life. So uh, people are very interested in spentinization, and they're not just people who work on rocks in the Atlantic 
ocean. People who work on the icy moons like Enceladus and uh, Europa and so on, these moons have got icy surfaces and water underneath the ice, and underneath that water is the same stuff as the Earth's mantle. We know from meteorites that most meteorites are made of essentially mantle rocks. They're the breaking up of planetary bodies which are similar to Earth. And, and so the speculation is that just as microbial life might have evolved in places like the Atlantis Massif where seawater can interact with olivine-rich rocks, that the same thing might have been and might indeed be happening on icy worlds out in the solar system. So it, it's, it's a very interesting place, the Atlantis Massif, for astrobiology as well as for marine geology. Looking down to look up. Indeed. But the other interesting thing about our hull is that uh, we also had on the, on the ship four microbiologists, and uh, the microbiologists were... Uh, collected a whole set of samples every five meters or so down this hole for, for 1,280 meters, they got a sample. And those samples, we think that the bottom of the hole now will be probably at more than 120 degrees. I mean, at the moment, what we've got is some temperature measurements in the hole, which go up to just over 90 degrees. But just before we'd done that, we'd flushed cold water into it for an extended period. So the, the temperature was warming up in, in, in over a period of hours. And we think that in a few years, we'll be able to go back and measure the temperature and probably be above 120 at the bottom of the hole, which is above the current limit for life. So potentially the microbiologists have got samples in these fentanized rocks where they find archaea, bacteria, uh, microbes and things like that, ancient looking microbes in terms of their longevity. And they can constrain what's going on in the rocks over that temperature gradient, which will be really exciting. Of course, we don't have any of that data yet. Yeah, it's always frustrating. Everyone wants the wants the results when you come back to shore, but it's like, yeah, that's, that's a year, two years away, maybe. There's a lot of work to be done. Exactly. This is cl very close to an area we've discussed in the past. The the Atlantis Massif is is kind of next door to the Lost City. Uh, is that It's the same processes going on there, isn't it? Exactly. So the Lost City hydrothermal field is on the top of the Atlantis Massif, and it's only 800 metres away from the deep hole we drilled in Spentonite. So we're drilling into the substrate of Lost City. So, you know, what's underneath Lost City? What the fluid, the fluid's coming out of Lost City at more than 100 degrees. It's, it's come from pretty deep down and it, it's gone through rocks similar to the ones we've drilled. So we can look at what's going on in there and we can uh, hopefully make better constraints on what's going on underneath Lost City and where the hydrogen and methane that are found in Lost City hydrothermal field are coming from. Oh, exciting stuff. And is that your particular area? Is that what excites you, the, the potential origins of life? That's uh, no, not really my field at all. <laughs> so the way that this whole thing started, I, I'm more of a petrologist and structural geologist, if you like, a, a geochemist to some extent. So I, I worked for a long time on, on shear zones in the Pyrenees. So I was a, an on-land geologist. And then I moved to kind of fault rocks in the ocean. So my interest in the Atlantis Massif has been historically mainly in the fault that exposed these prototypes and also gabbroic rocks, which are the lower crustal rocks. But uh, going back to what you asked about my expertise, so the, the process of getting an expedition approved is quite a long one. And it started in 2018. And I just got together with my, mainly with my petrological friends and said, why don't we drill a deeper hole in the Atlantis Massif? That would be interesting. And so we put together this proposal, deepening hole 1309D was its first thing, which is what the original intention was. This is that hole in the uh, five kilometers away in the Gabbro. And so we were going to deepen that and we we're going to get down to places where the temperature was about over, over 200 degrees and look at reactions between water and rock that were going on down there. And, uh, and then uh, it, I realized that when you're getting one of these international expeditions funded, you need to have as broad a coalition of people as possible. And obviously I was interested in Lost City and, and I, I'd been a co-proponent co of a 
another expedition, 357, which had drilled shallow holes in the vicinity of Lost City. And so I said, oh, well, why don't we, you know, we weren't going to put microbiology in because our hole was going to start at 1,040 degrees above the little ice. Yeah, supposedly beyond. Yes. So we thought, well, the microbiologists weren't very, very interested in that. But what we did do, we said, well, well, we'll sample waters in it. And the water in that deep hole, which we did sample, that has this whole temperature gradient. So the microbiologists are interested in that, in the microbes that might be in the water in the hole that was let been undisturbed for 13 years or so. But then we introduced this extra hole and we never expected it to get below 200 meters because that was the, the deepest anyone had got before. But we, we brought the microbiologists because they were very interested in the rocks from that, from the, the, the spentonized prototype rocks to get more, more of those rocks. And, and the way the, the science was written was that I found co-proponents, Beth Orcutt in, in particular, who, who helped with the microbiology description and Susan Lang, who's the other co-chief on the organic geochemistry side of of the proposal so we i don't make this proposal by being an expert in everything i i know about the structural geology and things i can write all that but i get other people to collaborate who can do this so it's a completely multidisciplinary international team 25 20 26 scientists all from different countries all over the world japan china india australia germany france america and britain so those are the all the countries that we had scientists on the expedition so um, I think this IODP is an exemplary program in this sense because all the data is free of access uh, after a year of moratorium. So anyone can go and inter interact with that. They can go and collect samples and so on. This, this is a nice sort of nexus point over a few of our previous episodes. We, we spoke with Mandy Joy about the, the deep biosphere and the sort of theory of how, how deep life goes and how much there is. And we even spoke to Kevin Hand about potential life on the ice moons and uh, how much it felt like a deep sea habitat really and even discussing that if you transplanted a, a hadal amphipod to uh, enceladus's ocean it might starve rather than die immediately it might live long enough to yeah. run out of food it might yes so uh, i mean we are um, generating food for the microbes in lost city and in the and potentially in the rock because what do they need well they can't rely on photosynthesis because there's no light so they're chemosynthetic bacteria. They rely on chemical reactions to give them energy. We live off carbon, which is, is generated by microbial and, and biological activity. We eat plants, we eat animals. It's fixed into a form we can use it. Yes, and we don't try and get our carbon directly from carbon dioxide. But in the bottom of the ocean, they need to get their carbon from somewhere else. Now, of course, once you've got some microbes, then new microbes can eat the old microbes and so on. But uh, in the early days of, of life, they had to be capable of getting their carbon from abiotic sources. So people are very interested in the microbes that still do that. There was a record of previous microbial life as well, isn't there? They're not just what's extant right now and, and living, but there were, there were records of both the Earth's previous climate and, um, and life, wasn't there? Well, we, we can find in, in rocks, you know, three billion year old rocks, we can find stromatolites, which are microbial mats. I'm getting out of my comfort zone now, but uh, you can certainly go back a, a reasonable way. And you know, some of the microbiologists in our ship, they don't look at the microbes themselves. They, they look at, at the fossil microbes, if you like, the organic matter that's left, and they, they do DNA sequencing on it. So we had interesting different microbiologists. We had uh, Gordon Sutherland. He's very interested in living microbes. He was finding microbes that were living off bits of the inside of the drill string, which is metal. <laughs> they were growing from iron oxidation, rusting basically metal in seawater. And we have Feng Ping Wang, who's from China, and she's a very famous microbiologist. You can look her up on Wikipedia. And she specializes in culturing in the laboratory. So she's doing these things right at the limit of life, culturing them for many years, and then seeing, well, okay, these microbes here have survived at 
temperature x. If I put them in temperature x minus 20, then they grow. And she collected lots of specimens, which she's put into little pressure vessels and taken back to China to to do these experiments in her lab. So a very, very interesting set of people. Yeah, really broad team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So doing this required some old technology and some very new technology. You mentioned you sort of revisiting a hole that was bored previously, and it was bored quite a long time ago, wasn't it? Was it about 20 years? Uh, yes, in 2004-05, we were there over Christmas and New Year. So yes, that was. it's been there for a long time. And what we do with these holes, we put what's called a re-entry cone onto the top. There's a re-entry cone and some casing, which just protects the top of the hole from bits of rock falling into the bottom. And so we'd put this re-entry cone in back in 2005, and it, it's still there now, and we were able to re-enter it. And then we've left this new hole with a, a re-entry code as well. So that means that that hole 1309D, it was re-entered after seven years by an expedition called 340T, which was just a, a logging expedition and temperature measurement. So they just lowered um, geophysical instruments down the hole with the drilling ship. They, they did logging with the drilling ship inside the hole and uh, measured the temperature, which is really very uh, interesting and then it was left for another 13 years and we went back and, and and went back into it and sampled water in the hole to see whether whether in the intervening 13 years since it was last disturbed we'd had reactions going on between water and the rock in the deepest parts of the hole and uh, we measured the temperature gradient again and then we did deepen the hole by another 80 meters and we got some rock from down the bottom there as well uh, including some samples from microbiologists so they can prove there's no life at 140 degrees centigrade it's something that's just very easily said, you know, we, we re-entered a hole that we had previously drilled. But these are, what, over 2,000 metres deep? You're on a moving platform, but way above them? You know, how on earth is that achieved? Well, basically, we know the latitude-longitude of the hole, and we take the ship to that latitude and longitude. And then the, the ship, the Geordie's Resolution, I mean, it, like all drilling ships, actually, it's, it's, it's a 50-year-old drilling ship. So in, in drilling ship terms, it's pretty old tech. You know, you can go on a tour around and you can go in the shack where they control the drilling. And it's got, you know, knobs and dials and things like that. You know, the, those old school things that we used to have on instruments. Oh, and then they've got a crew of about five guys who are tripping the pipe, which I'll come to in a minute. So it's a, quite a labor intensive thing. Well, now on a modern oil field drilling ship, it's all pretty much robotic and it's all controlled from a, a dedicated computer in some place not, not very near the uh, drill floor. No one's getting muddy and wet. Uh, no, no, exactly. Only if they have to fix something. But anyway, how do we find the hole? Okay, well, what we have to do is we don't have any submersible thing that can get, we don't have a, an ROV that can go down there and look for it. What we do is we just sit there on the, on the top of the seat and we trip the pipe. And that means that we, we put a 30 meter length of pipe. We, we first prepare, the, the guys first prepare the drill bit and the, the, what's called the bottom hole assembly. So it's a drill bit that's about a foot across, but it's got this about six and a half centimeter hole in the middle, which is where the core comes up. So it's like a drill bit which can drill a hole in the rock, leaving a, a sort of column of rock that pokes up through it. And then it's got this, this a, a bunch of rather heavy bits of pipe that give it a bit of weight near the bottom. And then above that, this is drill string, which is wider than the piece of rock, and it's in 30 meter lengths. So they basically lower what's there already down get hold of it, use the derrick and a crane and so on that's all organized to pick up another 30 meter length, screw that into the uh, what's there already. And then they drop that down 30 meters, grab hold of it again, put another 30 meters on. So we get down the, the 1309D hole was actually at about 1600 meters below the seafloor. So you can work out how many lengths of pipe they had to put in there. So uh, 50, 50 odd lengths of pipe <laughs> to get down there. And then when you've got down to the right depth, you send a camera down. So there's a frame that they can clip around the drill string and drop that through the moon pool. So in the middle of the ship, there's a big hole. 
that's called the mood pool that's where the drill and the drill string and the camera and everything can go down through that and you go down with this camera and just you can see the bit and you can see fish swimming around and things like this and then they just look around for the um, cone sticking up so it's basically you go down there you do a camera survey which means you just say, okay, we, we think we're in the right place here. We'll just sort of spiral our way out. We'll go go up, up a bit, sideways a bit, down a bit, sideways, until we see the drill coder. And it, the first time we entered, it took about an hour, perhaps, to find it. Really impressive. And we're talking about something which is like two meters across here, at 1,600 meters depth. And, and there's no very high tech in doing this. You know, well, I mean, there's there's GPS positioning. Uh, the ship has dynamic positioning, which means it has a set of thrusters that can keep it on station if the wind's blowing and so on. I'm guessing there's a USB-L on the, on the end, so you know where the, the bit is relative to the ship? Um, not really. Really? We assume it's directly below, but if there's a current, it won't be directly below. The drill string, you know, it has a certain amount of flex in it. And, uh, I mean, obviously, we have a fiber optic link to the camera. That's the only electronics we have at the bottom of the, the drill string. Um, we were able to collect bottom water samples by a, a bottle on the drill string as well, which was triggered electronically. But uh, otherwise, it's not very high tech at all, really. Oh, is the drill bit itself hydraulic? The, the drill bit, the drill, no, the drill bit is turned from the top. Oh, right. Okay. It is possible to have a drill bit that is turned by a so-called mud motor at the bottom. And, and, and we did have that technology to try and install a re-entry cone, which actually failed in the end, and then we tried a different way. But in terms of finding the bit itself, once we got into the hole, then we need to trip that pipe another 1,400 metres. So that's another process, several hours of tripping the pipe to get down to 1,400 metres. And then we turn the whole drill string from a motor in the derrick at the top of the ship. So the, the drilling is, is controlled from the ship. And, uh -huh. uh, and then we're able to sample the core. What, what we do is we put a, a, what's called a core barrel, which is basically a plastic tube. We drop that down through the drill string and it just sort of latches itself right at the bottom, just above the drill bit. And then as you drill down, the core kind of comes up into that barrel. And then when you've got five meters of core, and you drill five meters down, then you can send a latch key, if you like. You drop that down the drill pipe, and that has to be done from right at the top of the derrick. So there's one of the drillers hoists himself up in a harness. With a five-meter drain pipe. Puts this into the top of the pipe. It drops down to the bottom on the end of a cable, which is onto the thing, and then we can pull that up again on that cable. We don't have to keep changing the bit in order to recover core, but every few days, the bit wears out, and we have to, to trip all the pipe right back onto the ship again, change the bit on the ship, and then trip it right and put it right down again. So it's typically three to five days of, of wear on the bit, and we have to change it. Wow. But uh, we, we, we were getting core, five metres of core in 1601C, every hour and a quarter. So every hour and a quarter, a new set of core would come up for the core describers to describe. So they had a, a lot of work to do. Yeah, that's loads of material. That's, that's quicker progress than I had in my mind. Uh, well, we, we were very surprised at the progress we got in this hole. I mean, in hole 1309D, we were going at about one metre an hour, 1.5 metres an hour. But in terms of drilling rate, we were up at five or six metres per hour. Uh, you know, in the one hour and a quarter, a lot of that was just sending the core barrel down and yeah. sticking another length of core out. So it, it was, it was uh, remarkably quick and remarkably trouble-free drilling compared to expectations. Brilliant. So you weren't anticipating setting a new record. It just went extremely well. Well, we, we were hoping to set some records in hole 1309D, actually. So and we, we just failed by about five metres, eight metres. 
to drill the deepest ever hole in Gabra. We got close to it, but we didn't. We, we decided when we got this such favourable drilling in 1601C that we preferred that hole. Oh yeah, let's deepen this one because it's in the spentonite. Mm. No one's done that before. So we weren't expecting to beat the 200 metre record for a hole in spentonite prototype, but we did. And the science bot just said, oh, let's just keep drilling here. You know, this is really exciting. <laughs> don't, don't interrupt a good thing. No, exactly. So yes, yeah, so we, we were expecting to set one or two records, but we set different records from the ones we expected to set. Uh, you've, got, you've got to be flexible at that. I spent years writing those um, writing those grant proposals, but you've just got to roll with the punches when you're out there. <laughs> well, absolutely. And, and we, we had a few punches of other sorts. Can we talk about the sort of history of this project for a while and then maybe look into the future a little bit? Because the the sort of idea of a, of deep sea drilling sort of began in the 1960s and there was a very successful project during that time and then funding dried out and it, it was... It was a project that was sort of well, a dream that was sort of left for, for a while and it was only quite recently sort of reinvigorated and there's, there's a bit of uncertainty going forward, isn't there? Yes, so it started as the Deep Sea Drilling Project. There were quite a lot of aims of the Deep Sea Drilling Project, but one of the aims was to drill a mohole, i.e. a hole through the moho. And the, the, the moho is the boundary between the crust and the mantle. So underneath uh, Britain or New Zealand, that's down at 30 kilometres or so. And, you know, out of reach of drilling, really. You know, the deepest hole, as I recall, is 14 kilometres from the Kola Peninsula up in northern Russia. And uh, there's been a couple of other deep holes as well in Germany and uh, one recently in China. So drilling a mohole in the Constance is still out of reach. The problem is, you know, it's very deep and it gets very hot as well. So the, the idea was, well, in the oceans, it's only six kilometres typically in the Pacific, say, the crust. So we can drill a mohole through this six kilometres and get into the mantle. And they tried a few times. So they, they tried it. Uh, the first real effort was a hole called 504B. And that was after, that was in the first, in the first eight days of ODP. So DSDP, Deep Sea Drilling Project. Then it became ODP. And then it became IODP. So the, the program started drilling holes in outcrops of, of spentonized prototype. And that's where we set a new record, not in the sense of the first hole into mantle rocks, maybe the 10th hole into mantle rocks. That we've drilled but we drilled, drilled by far the deepest and with the best recovery so that that's the, the the big achievement that we did and that aim even in that expedition 304 305 the expectation of geophysics and getting rocks from submersibles and dredging up underneath lost city on the south wall of the massif was that we would drill into serpentinized prototype and then fresh prototype and so that was the aim, actually, of Expeditions 304 and 305 back in 2004-05, was to drill a hole into fresh mantle rocks, because the geophysics suggested that. And unfortunately, the geophysics turned out to be a bit misleading, and we drilled a 1,400-metre hole in Gabbro, which is lower crustal rocks and not mantle rocks at all. So a lot of scientists on that expedition were rather disappointed. And so we effectively fulfilled the objective of that by drilling a hole into mantle rocks and, and spentonized ones. We didn't get into completely fresh rocks. Well, we certainly got rocks with about 50% altered with plenty of olivine still left in them. So anyway, in terms of the program, I mean, IODP was a, a really valuable program. I and mean, one of the first things it did was, I think, on leg two or three back in the 60s, uh, they drilled a South Atlantic transect. So they drilled with the Glomar Challenger ship, a transect of holes from the mid-ocean ridge in the South Atlantic away from that. And they basically proved that the age of the seafloor was progressively older as you went away from mid-Atlantic Ridge. So this was a, a critical proof of plate tectonics because the idea of plate tectonics had just come around. The idea that you had spreading ridges in the middle of the Atlantic and the Pacific 
where the new crust and new oceanic lithosphere was being generated in a continuous process. And therefore, as you went towards Africa or towards South America, away from the centre of the, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, the rocks should become older and older. And they did. So that was a really key thing. But uh, now what's, what's happened with the programme is that the, the Geordie's Resolution, as I say, it's a 50-year-old drilling ship. And it's only got another five years of life in it before some environmental certificates and things run out completely. And we've known for, for, for a long time that, that this drill ship needed replacing in order to continue the programme. But of course, replacing this drilling ship is a, an expensive thing. And it, it's funded in America. It's an American ship funded by NSF, the, uh, the, you know, the research uh, council in America, covers all, all branches of scientific research. And the scientists from the IODP side had made proposals for a new ship, oh, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And this kept being cut into the long grass by NSF, you know, oh, yeah, we'll decide that later. And then we had expected, uh, you know, back in uh, February, the expectation was that the program would be renewed for another four years. And we'd have another four years of use of the Geology's resolution. But we had this rather bombshell announcement in the pages of Nature uh, back in March this year, which said that the NSF had decided that they were not going to continue the programme. And that's how you found out? That's basically how everyone involved in IADP found out. Even oh. the, the people in College Station who run the thing didn't know. It seems like the, the programme has consistently, I mean, I'm sure it's expensive, but it seems like it's consistently delivered quite groundbreaking results. Yes. Well, it, it's uh, $70 million a year, the existing programme costs. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hi, this is Kwan Yu Lin from the University of Delaware. Thank you for having me, and it's a real pleasure to be on the Deep Sea Podcast. So I am an igneous petrologist, which means that I study rocks that are formed directly from magmatic processes, like most of the rocks on the ocean floor. And by that, we learn about how the Earth works. So the overarching question that our expedition, which is IODP Expedition 399, is trying to address is the origin of life on Earth. Or more precisely, what does the environment that may have cultivated the earliest forms of life look like? And so that brings us to our site, which is known as the Atlantis Massif. It is located at around 30 degrees north in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And this is a very special locality where a rock called peridotite, which you know you typically can't find until you reach around four to seven kilometers beneath the seafloor, but at this site, these rocks are uplifted by tectonic processes and exposed close to the surface. And therefore, these parasites are reacting with seawater. And this is where all the magic happens, right? So this reaction, uh, what we call serpentinization, one of the byproduct of this reaction is hydrogen gas, which in combination with an appropriate catalyst uh, in such hydrothermal systems can lead to abiotic synthesis of organic molecules uh, which provides source of food for microbial life. So yes, previous expeditions at this site have actually found microbes here in the deep sea. And especially in this site where we call the Lost City Hydrothermal Field, uh, where you can find active venting chimneys of fluid and gas. And thus, it has been postulated that this sort of environment might have been an analog of systems where these reactions happened in the early Earth's history and led to the development of life. But an interesting thing here is that along the Mid-Atlantic uh, Ridge system, we actually do have quite a few sites that has these type of shallow prototype exposure and serpentinization going on, but none of them really have a hydrothermal system developed in a way that Lost City does. 
So one obvious question here is, is there anything unique about these peridotites that are exposed here uh, compared to the others? And this is where we petrologists come in, right? So our role on the ship as petrologists is to characterize the primary features of these rocks. And then after the cruise, uh, we will be in the lab examining their chemical compositions and try to compare them uh, with other prototypes at similar settings to see if these uh, primary rock compositions plays any role in the development of such venting systems. And of course, our scientific party has a really wide range of people from different backgrounds and have different expertise. So for example, we have alteration petrologists who look at how rocks react with fluids. Obviously, there's microbiologists who take rock samples and culture them and try to find living cells in those rocks. There's fluid geochemists that measure the composition of fluids that's circulating in the system, which is really important. There are also like structural geologists that look at all the cracks and how these rocks deform to understand how on earth these rocks were uplifted close to the surface in the first place. And then there's physical property specialist and paleomagnetism specialist, uh, and they measure the physical properties of the rocks, such as density, thermal conductivity, magnetism, and so forth. We also have an excellent group of outreach officers that do what they call ship-to-shore broadcast and tours, uh, which is a great venue for students to take a peek at what life is like on a research vessel. And at the same time, they're communicating the science that we're doing to the public and those that are interested, uh, very similar to what you guys do here on the Deep Sea Podcast. And then there's also like technical staff who work with the scientists hand in hand to get you know some of the analysis done on the ship. There's also a group of really talented drillers that take of all the drilling, which is an extremely sophisticated process. So you can kind of imagine bringing up a three-inch diameter core from the seafloor that is under a water column of over a thousand meter depth on top of all, you know, all the waves, all the, you know, different weather conditions. And that's just really mind-blowing thinking about it. And most importantly, there's a catering team on the ship that makes wonderful food, way better than anything that I've been feeding myself when I'm on land. And there's also incredible cleaning staff that's always helping us with all the mess that we're creating. Thank you all very much. <laughs> and so you can imagine that this is a really collaborative environment where people work closely together to meet the scientific objectives and at the same time, you know, making sure that everyone's well-being is taken care of, you know, everyone is safe and all the operations are conducted under a safe manner. And, you know, of course, nothing ever goes as planned. And so the collaborative atmosphere is really, you know, the key in, you know, we work as a group in responding to all the uncertainties and decision makings, which a lot of times are really stressful, but, you know, that's kind of what life is like. So just uh, mentioning briefly, so everyone works on 12-hour shifts, but quite frankly, you know, given how much work there is to be done, uh, it is really hard sometimes to get off shift on time and, you know, taking care of oneself, both physically and mentally under such environments. Is a really important task that, you know, I wasn't really aware of until I got on the boat. So I was like, oh, wow, there's so many things going on. And, you know, you just have to kind of find your own rhythm or routine that works the best for you. And that differs for every individual. And thankfully, there are facilities.
facilities on the ship, like movie rooms, gym, you know, things like that, that you can help yourself distress if you need to. So yeah, basically that's just a really quick rundown of some of the scientific objectives of the cruise and what is life like on the Joydis resolution. And um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. And if you are interested in the scientific outcomes, which will you know gradually come out in the upcoming years, uh, you can always check out the IODP website. So I'm Kuan Yu Lin from UD and I'll see you next time. Hi, my name is Luan Haywood, and I am a marine science technician on the Joides Resolution. I also work as a research associate at the International Ocean Discovery Program. That's kind of the land equivalent, which is housed at Texas A&M University. By discipline, I'm an igneous petrologist, but for the last four years, I've been working and also living on the Joides Resolution for six months out of the year. During the expedition, I am one of around 125 people that we have on the ship. And then also each expedition, we have about 20 rotating visiting scientists. As a technician, we are tasked with taking care of the shipboard lab facilities. So on the Joides Resolution, we are probably, if not the most, then definitely one of the most well-instrumented laboratory facilities on a ship in the world. So those lab facilities take tons of people to both maintain, but also develop. Most of the equipment that we have on the ship are kind of homemade systems that are built out of commercially available parts. Then, during expeditions, since our expeditions take place in super remote areas in the middle of the oceans, if something breaks, as a technician, we would be first on the line to work with people back on shore and then also the manufacturers to try to fix instruments and get them to come back up. The reason why we have so many instruments aboard the Joides Resolution is because what we're doing is so unique and also time sensitive. So on each expedition, we are bringing up usually kilometers and kilometers worth of core up from the seafloor onto our ship, where it's then added to this collection. And then we also collect a ton of data on that core. So this is usually stuff about the core that we refer to as ephemeral properties. These are properties that change and are time sensitive. So this might be something like the temperature of the core when it comes up the drill floor, which would give us an idea of the temperature or the geothermal gradient within the Earth's crust at the seafloor, or things like the color because when you expose geological materials to oxygen, usually the color can start changing pretty quickly. For each expedition, we have some sort of expedition goal. This might be to, say, drill a new hole in a part of the ocean crust that's never been drilled before, or maybe to drill to a certain age horizon or an extinction event because we're trying to target those rocks so that we can study maybe the Earth's climate before and after that extinction event or something like that. So because of this, we have to assess while we're out there whether or not we have reached the drilling target. So say if we were trying to target a specific age horizon, we would need to have age data while we're on the ship. And for normal on-land expeditions, this might mean getting rocks and then doing some sort of age dating, either radiometric dating or paleontological dating or magnetostratigraphic dating. But since we are 
out in the middle of the ocean and we're so remote. And for many areas of the ocean, this is kind of the one chance that we get to study that area of the ocean, at least on the five-year, 10-year scale. We need to make sure that we are reaching our drilling targets while we're out there. So because of that, we have a lot of onboard ship-based labs to try to do geochronology, either via the rock magnetics, the, the record of the Earth's magnetic field switching from north to south, or by looking at usually micropaleontological data. So tracking the microorganisms and like the, the skeletons of these fossil planktons and trying to use that to figure out the specific date that a particular sediment was laid down. So as you can imagine, every expedition, we're collecting huge amounts of sample, but we're also collecting huge amounts of shipboard data. And on the technical staff, our responsibility is to make sure that all of those samples and all of that data is retained in a way that's usable for the visiting scientists that are coming onto the ship, but then also for the larger scientific community, because the data itself is released to the public open source in data repositories such as Zenodo. And then the samples, after a certain amount of time are available for sci any scientist to make an application to get sample material to then study in their specific lab back home. Sailing on Majority's resolution, my favorite and my least favorite thing is this strong sense of community that we have among all of the people that work there. It's kind of like I explain it like, like the worst part is that you go to work for 60 days and you never get to leave and you have to spend all this time with your coworkers and you never get to go, go home. But really, there's this incredible bond with all of the people out there. Many of the people sailing on the ship have been working out there for decades and decades. And it's just got this incredible energy. And we're people from such incredibly different walks of life. But there's just this overall feel that at the end of the day, we all respect each other and we're all working together towards this common goal. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. We now have a support us page uh, to help keep the podcast going. So we've listed lots of ways of helping the show from free things like leaving a review, subscribing to lovely, lovely things where you give us cash, like becoming a patron or buying our merch. What I'll say is, though, that if, if you were sort of on the fence between those two, there's quite a, a gouge taken out of the merch. We don't get a great deal. To be honest, if you become a patron, we send you some stickers anyway. So uh, if you're on the fence, then the, the patron route helps us but uh, we love to see you out in the merch so feel free to do that we don't mind at all and so to wrap up this one we'll deep see you next time and i abyss you already It's funny to read the news on that website because it's just like study after study of can it help COVID? Can it improve your Wi-Fi signal? Can it make your wife love you more? You know, every single thing is saying like they're doing a study to see if their cure-all can even cure this new thing. But there's never a paper. There's never like, here's what the study yeah. found. It's that science washing again. Wasn't it the guy on YouTube who was, he's a big muscular bodybuilder guy. He ate nothing but liver. That's it. Liver king or something like that. And he was going on about how all you had to do was liver and it turns out he, he was like a massively... Steroids. <laughs>
yeah. 12 grand a month on steroids yeah <laughs> it'll be the steroids mate it'll be the steroids doing it <laughs> yeah i reckon it's that not just eating awful 